Hello, beautiful listeners. It's Rob with Thieves, Rogues, and Renegades. We know you love the stories we tell, and we love telling them. However, producing and hosting the podcast is not free, but there's a way you can help. Find us on Patreon. Our Patreon members get access to exclusive content, early episode releases, and all other sorts of goodies. Go to www.patreon.com slash trrpod for as little as a buck a month. Every cent we take in goes back to making the show bigger and better. Thank you, we love you, and as always, hold fast and enjoy the show. So guys, I want to take a little poll around the table here. Uh, (laughs) Poll. Yeah. Sorry, it's been been a long day. I'm glad that's how we're starting. How many drinks would it take to kill you? My party trick used to be that I could, I could neck Jack Daniels like Bluto and Animal House. Mm-hmm. So probably a lot. What time period are we talking about? And that, but that's what your party trick used to be. What about yeah, now? That now own, what about I, now that your own digestive system is in always in rebellion? Well, it's because of that. Um, I don't know. I, I mean, I'll bet I could still do it, but boy, that would be the only difference now. Like, like I still drink like that. I'm just hungover. Yeah. Two questions: uh, length of time consumption. And is praying for death the next day count? Or are does you talking not, actual does not death? Count. I mean, actually shuffle Kyle off this mortal coil. How many drinks would kill you? Are we talking like a day drinking at a festival? Or are we talking like I'm talking four like, hours at a party? I'm talking like pouring whiskey into a glass, slugging it down, pour it, refilling it immediately again. The uh, neat whiskey version Keith, of chain smoking. Keith knows exactly how many because they are just below that level on the YouTube channel. Mm. <laughs> it's just just sublethal. My, my tolerance is a little bit higher. <laughs> it's not a bottle of whiskey. It's probably a bottle and a half of whiskey. I, I would say close to that, yeah. Hmm. So a bottle think, and a half of whiskey think, to kill you. Bottle and a half of whiskey to kill you. What, Chris? Two and I, a half to I kill you? I also have to say ah. proof is going to make a big difference because of alcohol content. Yeah. I might even that back very that up true. to two for actual well, Let's say standard death. proof, like 40 to 45% ABV. So I'm saying two, I'm taking two-fifths of a whiskey equivalent. Okay. I think this question really got away from you, Rob. I think so. Um, although I have my answer, it's not going to be whiskey that kills me. It's going to be this show, and this show is Steve's Rogues and Renegades, everybody. Welcome. I'm Rob North. I'm your co-host, Chris Miller. I'm Kyle Graper. I'm uh, guest host, uh, Keith Volhop. Yes, uh, Michael Lernett was supposed to join us today. He's been having some voice issues, uh, so we are without currently without Iron Mike Lernett today. Sadly, but Keith has <laughs> happily volunteered to step in. Yeah, um, we, we still have Keith on loan from Rasputin. Yes, we still he's he's still on on retainer, and uh, like the cock in a jar, yeah, he's just being <laughs> passed around museums. <laughs> Keith, uh, was, we gotta uh, get it in writing. First one to die, cock in a jar. Yeah. We yeah. just let us like, come to an agreement today, yeah. gentlemen. Like Rasputin, ain't <laughs> found a way to kill me yet. Yeah, but uh, I'm, I'm gonna follow this up with more questions. Does it have to be our cock, or can we name the animal the cock in the jar <laughs> that is named to us? Is <laughs> But uh, yeah, Keith Volhoff from the Thrifty Whiskey YouTube channel. Thank you for joining us, Keith. I choose chipmunk. <laughs> Keep expectations low and no one's ever disappointed. Yeah. Bingo. There you go. <laughs> that so, way it's a pleasant surprise. Take that, Napoleon. <laughs> <laughs> so we are Listen to Rasputin Part 6 for more details about Napoleon's penis. Uh, so today we have a little post-Rasputin palate cleanser in the form of a story about yet another legendary drunkard it's a prohibition story a uniquely american crime story a story of disorganized crime the story of the kind of crime caper you get when a group of idiots come up with a plot to benefit from the death of a much more indomitable idiot and simply can't find the means to do away with the man who's that sounds like thieves rogues and renegades (laughs) right (laughs) yeah why do you think we were attracted to this story i'm gonna stop you there and say group of idiots i don't think that this was a group of idiots because it it worked once they True. just they accidentally picked a superhuman. Yeah. They accidentally <laughs> picked one of the X-Men. Right. Yeah. <laughs> but so uh, okay, you do make a fair point. But uh, yeah, but they they simply can't find the means to do away with a man whose legendary inability to die would go down in history. Today we examine the story of the plot to kill Michael Malloy, better known to history as Mike the Durable, the Irish Juggernaut, the Rasputin of the Bronx. Or simply, Iron Mike. Oh, crap. I did the Iron Mike Tyson. Uh, uh, sorry, guys. It's the same thing, but just weed. Oh, okay. Yeah. 
<laughs> what did Tyson say? He was smoking like a pound of weed a day. Something like that. Like, Mike, we know it was a lot of weed, but it wasn't a pound of weed. No, that's an inconveniently large <laughs> right. amount of weed to smoke in a day. That's even if you have a lot of friends. Yeah. I think there were more ears intact on this one, too. Yeah. <laughs> I don't know. Uh, there, there, one guy, one guy doesn't have one. Yeah, that's <laughs> this true. <is> true. <laughs> so it doesn't say how he lost it, though. Our primary source today is on the house: the bizarre plot to kill Michael Malloy by Simon Reed. Uh, so, gentlemen, any points of order before we get started with the story of Iron Mike Malloy? I'm very excited about this one because it is abjectly hilarious. It and is. It's very cut and dry. Like the I said, one... this is a palate cleanser. This is just pure <laughs> folly. It's... We're, we're back to our roots, baby. Yeah. This is, you know, put on yakety sacks and watch the mayhem unfold. So, now we all know that the Volstead Act and the 18th Amendment were one of the greatest mistakes made in American history and one of, the, one of its greatest cases of unintended consequences. And when the act went into effect on January 17, 1920, prohibiting the production, sale, and transport of booze, instead of creating the more sober, clean, virtuous society that the moralists of the time uh, were hoping for, because we all know that the prohibition of something makes it entirely go away, History has proven that. Uh, it created the greatest black market economy ever seen. And with it came a crime wave, the likes of which has never been seen before in this country and has never been seen since. Organized crime outfits exploded in both numbers, wealth, and effectiveness, creating huge economic empires on the back of bootlegging efforts in order to keep up with the ever-increasing demand for alcohol and then making their way into drugs, prostitution, gambling, and protection rackets in order to branch out and diversify their crime portfolios. Now, this was the crime wave that gave us legendary figures like Al Capone, Lucky Luciano, Arnold Rothstein, Meyer Lansky, and after the economic impact of the stock market crash in October of 29, added the desperation, uh, a lot of desperation to a lot of people. Uh, by the time our story takes place, we can also start to factor in figures like John Dillinger, Babyface Nelson, and Bonnie and Clyde. And Herbert Hoover. Mm. <laughs> but... The criminal element... Lingerie aficionado. (laughs) No, that's J. J. Edgar Edgar Hoover. Hoover. (laughs) I want to root out these communists, but I'm too busy fitting a parking cone into myself. (laughs) So... (laughs) You all right, Kyle? Kyle almost did a spit take. Nope. Anyway. The timing on that was just fantastic. Kyle, just spit away from this hard drive. (laughs) This is is our (laughs) lifeblood. But the criminal element we're talking about today are not in the same rank as these legends of the underworld. Now, these guys were the byproduct of the New York speakeasy culture, not the romanticized element that you see in bar culture today with complicated cocktails, natalie dressed barkeeps with sleeve tattoos with entirely too much meaning, and the millennials with money who managed to keep the lights on. Instead, we're talking about true shitholes, places that serve cheap rot gut to people barely scraping by, the places that earn the name speakeasy simply because they were illegally serving alcohol and trying to avoid the gaze of the authorities, and catering more to the doing crime to pay the rent crowd rather than the bootlegging barons of the day. Now, the speakeasy where our story is set was a little out of the way joint at 3775 Third Avenue in the Bronx, just off of 171st Street, sandwiched between Claremont Park and Cretona Park, hidden next to an awning and window shade shop. One of nearly 32,000 speaks that came and went during the years of Prohibition in New York City alone. Yeah, I was going to say, that's just in one place. Yeah. Now, the place didn't look like much from the outside, and this impression was a correct one because it wasn't much on the inside either. It's an absolute rat dive. The so bar space. It was CBGB's. Yeah. The bar space was a single badly lit Shitty room. music. <laughs> hosting nothing but a few small wooden tables and a makeshift bar counter stacked, stocked with a few dubious liquor bottles, a keg of warm, low quality beer, mm. and an ever present plate of sardines. No separate bathroom. I think I partied at that frat house yeah. a bit. <laughs> There was no separate bathroom. If you had to go, the toilet was in the main bar space behind a small partition. Oh my god, so it's a Pittsburgh it, toilet. It's a Pittsburgh toilet. <laughs> yeah. It was CBGB's. Yeah. <laughs> so dinner and a show. Yeah. Hey everybody, let's go count Bobby's shit. <laughs> so this you, is before you could watch sports on television, yeah. I get it. Now the only other space was a stock room in the back with a safe, extra booze, and a crash couch of the sort of quality that makes you think it needs an exorcism rather than a good cleaning. Now, the clientele were mostly the poorest workers in the neighborhood or the lucky unemployed who could scrape together the cash for a drink. The place was staffed by the local homeless alcoholics who would be paid in booze that they could drink on shift rather than any kind of actual wage. <laughs> I'm not, not, not joking. amazing. Yeah. <laughs> it was a cost-saving measure. That's exactly what it was. Oh Prohibition God. booze wasn't cheap. 
It was, like all New York speaks, on the supply chain of famous bootleggers like Oni Madden, Dutch Schultz, and Waxy Gordon, but this place wasn't getting the quality product that was flowing to spots like the Gypsy Room, Circus, and the Cotton Club, but instead it was getting... <laughs> quality is dubious at that. Well, no. None I mean, you could get decent... Really? You get decent quality liquor. Oh, no, Cotton Club. Yeah, they oh, had one of the nicest looking bars. Yeah, if you could pay for it. They had a prescription pad. I just yeah. remember cocktails came out of this era because you couldn't drink the liquor by itself. Well, we'll get to that. <laughs> so, instead, places like this are getting the offcuts, the lower quality product that both they and their customers could afford. And the price of booze was much higher during Prohibition than it was now, adjusting for the risk. A snort of cheap whiskey at our usual dives costs... What, Chris, three bucks? Uh, it depends on where you fucking go. Three to yeah. five. I would say five is probably about standard for yeah. that now. Three to five. But during Prohibition, adjusting for inflation and relative purchasing power for the same product, we'd be paying the equivalent of about 25 bucks a shot. If I paid 25 bucks for a shot of Vladimir, I would, I would, I would be a criminal. Well, you, then, if you were there, you'd be doing you would it in the right criminal. time. Right. Yeah, technically. <laughs> I, as was everybody. Yeah. You bought booze. Technically, you would be. Yeah. Now... Let's explore our cast of players in this drama. In January of 1933, 3775th 3rd Avenue was under the ownership of one Antonio Tony Marino. The Wait. Oh, I'm sorry. What? You you did the nickname after the first name. I for half a second there I thought it was Antonio middle name Tony. <laughs> As Chris said, it's been a long ass day. They call me Tony Tony. Like how that's where Tony Two Tones came from. Yeah. But like, like how Italian is this man? It's, by the way, this story is very Italian and very Irish. Mamma mia. <laughs> excellent R and B music too. So the son of Italian immigrants, he was just another kid from the New York slums who'd had a hard scrabble life growing up. His mother had died when he was nine, and his teen years included a tumble down a flight of stairs that left him with a head injury that debilitated his ability to perform in school and left him with a hair-trigger fight reflex. So his options were serial killer or bootlegger. Yeah. Uh, now Again, his, the right time for yeah. yeah. His father kicked him out at 15, and he struggled to adjust to life on the street, uh, contracting syphilis from a sex worker and twice attempting suicide all before his 16th birthday. Now, he attempted to go straight, but struggled to hold down any sort of job, and he always fell back into petty theft. However, once the Volstead Act came into effect and Prohibition came along, he found his raison d'etre like so many other criminal underclass. Working menial jobs for bootleggers and as a speakeasy barkeep, he managed to accrue enough funds and influence by 1928 to open up his own speak with a financing partner and had managed to find himself a wife, a kid, and a little apartment in the Bronx. However, he'd passed the syphilis on to his wife, and he turned into an abusive piece of shit. So much so that not only did his wife take the baby and leave, but his first speak folded after his business partner, who was the money man of the operation, walked out on him with all the cash. In 1931, however, Marino had opened 3775 Third Avenue, and by the beginning of 1933, it was still there, open in spite of all of Marino's deficiencies and ever having been raided by the authorities. Now, besides Marino, the other ever-present figure was bartender Joseph Red Murphy. An Irish kid from New Haven, Connecticut, he'd been orphaned at age six and had been passed around to various foster families who all tried to rein in a variety of behavioral issues before being committed for 10 years at the Mansfield State Mental Hospital. He had a measured IQ of 56 and a host... God, yeah. God, he could be a podcast host. (laughs) It's higher than any of us. And and he also had a host of developmental issues as well, but in 1929, at the age of 25, he'd had his fill of life on the wards and managed to escape the facility and run off to New York living on the streets and drinking himself into oblivion when he could afford to do so. Now, by 1931, Marino had picked him up out of the gutter and made him the daytime bartender at his speak, where Red spent as much time pouring drinks for himself as he did for the customers, and he would stay most nights drinking further before crashing on the god-awful sofa to wake up, dust off the cobwebs, and start work in the morning. Now, one of the speak's better put-together patrons was Francis Pasqua, known to everyone as Frank. A local undertaker and funeral parlor owner, he was one of Marino's regular drinking buddies, and in addition to running budget funerals for the local working-class population, he was also contracted by the city to handle some of the burials of the distressing amount of people who just turned up dead in the streets and remained unclaimed by loved ones. Now, he came from a working-class Italian immigrant background, but it seems that his home life was stable enough, and he was a studious kid, and he got an apprenticeship in funeral directing and opened his own business. Another of Marino's more distinguished patrons was also a local kid made good, a greengrocer named Daniel Kreisberg. Now, he was another anomaly around the speak, with a good upbringing as the child of immigrant German Jews, several kids and a wife he loved, and a successful legitimate storefront. Kreisberg, however, had a weakness. 
He was obsessed with crime stories, and he would also tune in intently to the stories of criminality that would crop up among the Speaks clientele, and he seemed to have a sort of fantasy life as a gangster, despite all that he had legitimately built. Then there was 24-year-old Harry Hershey Green, a cab driver with something of a sociopathic streak who did some legitimate trade, but he was also, but also willing to run errands and do favors for local organized crime outfits. He was a regular fixture around the Speak as well, and often played the role of that friend with a truck. <laughs> No, to... no, that that still exists. Yeah. I yeah. I owned a truck. That's you, you never used it. Everyone else did. I get it. Yeah. You you are incredibly valuable to society when you just own a truck. Yeah, if you're the only one with a car to hand because you're a cab driver. <laughs> there you go. I have to move again. Yeah. Now finally, there was one final fixture around the speakeasy who plays into our story. Often found slumped at the bar so much that he might as well have been part of the furniture. A sixty-year he was a sixty-year-old Irishman named Michael Malloy. Born in eighteen seventy in County Donegal in Ireland, we're not really sure when Malloy emigrated to the U.S. or exactly how he ended up in New York. But for a long time, Malloy seemed to be doing kind of all right. He worked as a firefighter, then as a sanitation worker, and by nineteen thirty-two, he'd had a job as a stationary engineer for one of New York's growing number of skyscrapers, running and feeding the boilers that controlled the heating systems. Hmm. However. By July of 1932, he was out of work because, like all of his jobs, drinking had gotten the better of him. He'd worked some odd jobs at Pasqua's funeral parlor, but for the most part, Malloy was out on the street, living a solitary life with the exception of popping into Marino's speakeasy to get as hammered as funds, or Marino's goodwill in the form of a tab, allowed. And Marino's patience was starting to wear thin. Red Murphy and Mike Malloy got on famously. And Red was happy, to, was happy to offer Malloy an ever-widening tab when Marino wasn't around, and this became a bone of contention between Marino and Murphy. It became clearer and clearer that Malloy was, was never going to be able to pay what he owed Marino, which was an amount that was growing ever larger because of Murphy's goodwill and Malloy's impressive taste for whiskey. Now, one night, Pasqua made a fateful suggestion to Marino. Malloy was getting old. He didn't have any family or close friends. Clearly, he wasn't taking care of his health, and he probably wasn't going to be around for, for much longer before he drank himself to death. This man was so incredibly drunk. I do want to circle back. Yeah. That the reason why we don't know when he immigrated, when he was born, is because he forgot. Yeah. That's because he himself had absolutely no, <laughs> no recollection. Idea. No that idea. That is how, like, when we say, oh, this guy drank a lot. He drank so much that he had no idea when he was born, where he was born. When he came to the United States, he probably didn't know what year it was. Yeah. He or just knew that it, it, like, he couldn't go to the same old bars. Did he even know he was in the United States? <laughs> During Prohibition, I'm sure he did. I mean, yeah. yeah. true. That's true. So, Pasqua suggested, why not take out a life insurance policy on Malloy? And when he croaked, then Marino would be able to recoup all the money he'd lost, giving Malloy a tab he'd never be able to pay. Plus, probably quite a bit more. Now, Pasqua would know. He saw guys like Malloy crumb across his mortuary slab all the time. Now, Tony Marino knew that Malloy would go along with anything if he thought there would be a drink for him at the end. So on July 29th, 1932, Marino, Pasqua, and Kreisberg, who desperately wanted in on the plan because it scratched his gangster itch, all sat down with Malloy and convinced him to go purchase some life insurance. Now, they would cover the monthly cost, and Malloy, who had already been plied with quite a bit of booze that day, would get all the hooch he could drink if he went along with it, and Malloy readily agreed to these terms. Now, using Pasqua's legitimacy as a businessman, he set up a meeting with an agent from the Prudential Insurance Company. Now, the agent was told that Malloy was born in 1885, shaving 15 years off his actual age, and working full-time for Pasqua, who was taking out the policy so as to protect his business interests and cover the costs of a funeral should Malloy unexpectedly, quote, pass away. Now, all the names were signed on the appropriate dotted lines, and a premium of $8.08 a month was agreed upon. Things, however, wouldn't be that easy. Now, Pasqua, being both the policyholder and the beneficiary, set off alarm bells in the application process. The assistant superintendent at the insurance company paid a visit to Pasqua and Malloy and immediately got a bad feeling, returned to the office, and rejected the claim. Now, the whole process took more than a month, during which Malloy was slugging down more and more of Tony Marino's booze. They tried again with a different insurance company, and this time, a true salesman of an agent came to their aid. Joseph Peretcher was the sort of insurance salesman who would do anything to make his commission, and he worked with Pasqua to make a policy happen and signed off on a $3,000 payout policy at a premium of $8.10 a month this time, sending his application up the chain. 
The application was roundly rejected again for the same reason as before, but Peretcher was not one to lose out on a sale so easily. He tried again to the same result, but he came up with a plan to work around the roadblocks. The trio of conspirators got Red Murphy in on the scheme, as it would look better to have another Irishman in on things. But, but First time for anything. Yeah. But another person was also brought in, although not at the choice of the group. Antonio Tough Tony Bastone was a Sicilian-born gangster and a hood through and through who was the main booze supplier to the speak at 3775 Third Avenue, a sort of middleman between the high-level bootleggers and people like Tony Marino. Now, Tough Tony ruled his little section of the booze game in the Bronx with an iron fist and a pair of 45 caliber revolvers stuck in his belt. And in addition to supplying the booze for the Speak, he also ran the protection racket that Marino had to pay in order to keep the Speak safe from competitors and from the ire of Tough Tony himself. Now, Bastone noticed the huddled conversations happening at the Speak and the insurance agents hanging around and had caught on to something happening and barged his way into the plan, demanding to be cut in on the deal and saying no to Tough Tony was something that could be remarkably bad for your health. Now, Tony also brought in his primary business partner, Joe Maglione, and both suggested that the booze plan was just silly, and instead they should just take Malloy out back and put a fucking bullet in his head. Now, they were talked out of this idea, appeased by leaving the option on the table as a last resort. Now, Peretcher also left an empty form to fill out at the speak, and a third attempt was made to get a policy through. Malloy was instead this time named as Nicholas Mallory, born in Illinois in 1886, his occupation listed as florist's assistant at the flower shop Pasqua worked with most closely for his funeral business. A Pasqua convinced the owner of the florist shop, through a few dollars his way, to play along if the insurance company came calling to check the veracity of this information, and soon a policy worth $800 at a premium of $5.02 a month was rubber-stamped by the Metropolitan Insurance Company and made official. It's also worth noting this was a double indemnity policy. If, Mo if Mallory, quote, a.k.a. Malloy, died accidentally, that $800 would be paid out double. Hmm. Now, the problem was that the policy was a little light for a plan that now had to include six payouts after the Marino was recouped for the booze Mallory had drunk. In order to fix this, Peretcher introduced the group to a couple of other agents who would bend the rules to make a sale, <clears throat> and two more policies were applied for and approved, with each one having slightly different details about Mallory's life and employment, just enough to smokescreen what was going on and to get them through the approval process. Each policy was worth $494.65 apiece, and given that all the policies were double indemnity in the case of accidental death, this led to a cool payout totaling $3,576 American should Malloy meet an unfortunate end. And this is the equivalent in purchasing power to about $205,000 in today's money. Now this wasn't Marino's first life insurance scheme, however. Four months earlier, Marino had been having an ongoing affair with a 27-year-old hairdresser from Washington, D.C. named Mabel Carlson. Attractive, blonde, intelligent, and from a decent family, her mother had recently died and she'd escaped to New York City to avoid a failing marriage. She'd sought solace in a bottle and worked her way through the goodwill of several speakeasies before ending up knocking on the bar of 3775 Third Avenue. Marino saw an opportunity and immediately began sleeping with her, but eventually, greed overtook lust. Upon seeing that Mabel was destined for a bad end, he convinced her to take out a life insurance policy worth two grand with him as the beneficiary, and within a month, Mabel had caught bronchial pneumonia from passing out outside in the cold and had died. Oof. At least, that's what the insurance company thought had happened. <laughs> as it turned out, Marino had, known, Marino had known that Mabel was indeed sick with pneumonia, which even in the 30s could be easily survivable with decent treatment. But sensing the time for a payout had come... He plied Mabel with copious amounts of booze until she was unresponsibly drunk, opened the bedroom window on the, into the freezing February air, stripped Mabel's clothes and the bed clothes off, and poured cold water all over her. In the night, she died of exposure. And Marino dried her off, redressed her, and left their body on a bench in the park. The authorities believed Marino's story that she'd gotten drunk and left off into the night and found nothing overly suspicious about the death, as it did happen, unfortunately, often to alcoholics on the underside of the social ladder. It still does. Yeah, yeah, still does. And the policy paid out to Marino without incident. This would later be viewed with intense suspicion, but there is much to discuss before we get to that. So, with the policies in place and an agreeable payout set to come once Malloy drank himself off this mortal coil, our little band of Bronx ne'er-do-wells were set to come into some decent cash once Malloy had ceased to be. But that was going to turn out to be a much 
much harder thing than was anticipated, which is something we'll talk about after we take a short break. Tired of listening to whiskey tubers talk about whiskeys you'll never see? Want to hear reviews about whiskeys you can actually afford? How about something you can truly find on the shelf? Are you looking for honest, unbiased feedback about the whiskeys in your budget? Then join us on YouTube at Thrifty Whiskey. Here at Thrifty Whiskey, we do blind tastings of whiskeys that are $30 and under. Bourbon, Scotch, Irish, Indian, and even Canadian. So catch us at Thrifty Whiskey. And until then, may the winds of fortune sail you. May you sail a gentle sea. May it always be the other guy who says, this drink's on me. Welcome back. Before we proceed with part two of the story, here's our Estonia fact of the episode. We are no longer in the top ten comedy podcasts in all of Estonia. So, to punish the Estonians, we are no longer doing an Estonia fact of the episode until we're back in the top ten. Yeah, come on, guys. Yeah. We're, we're doing this for you, okay? Step it up. Come on, Estonia. When you get us back into the top ten, then we'll tell people outside of Estonia fun facts about your country. Until then, do better. I'm sure the Ukrainian war has something to do with this. Well, we've all had to tighten our belts. Yeah. So now that Mike... Thanks for nothing, Joe Biden. (laughs) So now that Michael Malloy had over three and a half grand in life insurance out on him, it was time for him to die. Five and a half months had passed since the beginning of the plot, the time it had taken for everything to fall into place... Plus a little grace period so that Malloy didn't immediately die after the policies were approved, which would appear suspicious. Although none of the actual criminals thought of this, it was instead Daniel Kreisberg's only suggestion and apparently only real contribution to the plot. It was December of 1932, and it was time for the booze that was still constantly being supplied to Malloy to be upped to lethal amounts. Now, Red Murphy was tasked with plying him with as much whiskey and gin as he could humanly drink. For a week, Malloy would come in, Get copious amounts of booze put in front of him, happily slug it down, and then leave absolutely legless, only to show up the next day looking no worse for wear. So Honestly, it's hard to feel bad for him, because like this is definitely what his entire life aspiration was. So, I mean, the phrase, he died doing what he loved. Yeah. I feel like they could have just straight up... Well, we'll talk about that also. (laughs) Yeah. This is true. (laughs) It gets gets less awesome than just... And a never-ending bar Because right now it just sounds like Animal House 2. Yeah. However, <laughs> Marino, realizing that if he had to With do less this, sexual assault. Yeah. Mm. Mm. Yeah, there's even a joke about the sexual assault in it. So yeah. This is the boy that raped me. We have to get married. Oh, <laughs> <laughs> I'll leave you to talk about that. So... <laughs> Marino, realizing if he had to do this with his costly liquor, he might lose more than he stood to gain from the plot, came up with a tweak to the plan. Spend the first part of the night plying Mike Malloy with actual, if low-quality liquor, and then once he was good and hammered and wouldn't notice the difference, switch over to pouring pure wood alcohol into his glass. Now, wood alcohol is distilled from, of course, wood, and is a precursor to hundreds of industrial chemicals. Now, industrial alcohols were still allowed to be manufactured during Prohibition and were much cheaper and legal to acquire for legit means, but this didn't stop a lot of people from trying to use things like wood alcohol to get hammered. This led to a lot of people dying of methanol poisoning. I mean, it hasn't stopped. People still go to CVS, buy it off the fucking shelf, and... Yeah. But because an ounce of pure wood alcohol will make you blind, and it takes normally about five ounces to kill a person. And, and this is at the time, like, over Prohibition, it's not like a couple people died of this. It no. was tens of thousands. Oh, yeah. Tens yeah, of yeah, thousands yeah. a year. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So the government began putting toxins into wood alcohol in order to make it smell and taste terrible. But bootleggers would often undergo a complicated process of boiling and redistilling it in order to remove the toxins and would smell, sell wood methanol as a spirit, despite the risk of people going blind or dying as a result. Even though the bootlegger byproduct was less concentrated and therefore actually a bit less dangerous, although still not a good idea to drink. Now, Malloy wouldn't be treated to that particular product, however. Marino would have known that wood alcohol was lethal in decent amounts and was banking on Malloy just being too fucked up to notice the smell or taste, which doesn't speak highly for the product he was already serving in his speakeasy. Red Murphy went down to the local paint store, which sold wood methanol as a paint thinner, and brought several cans, which he emptied into liquor bottles to keep behind the bar solely for Malloy's consumption. There's no way that goes bad. Now, Marino and tough Tony Bastone sat in the corner and watched as Malloy entered, downed quite a few regular whiskeys, and got himself properly hammered, and then Murphy switched the bottle over, and the two Tonys watched 
as Mike Malloy downed glass after glass of pure wood alcohol without noticing a lick of difference, drinking enough to render everyone else in the bar blind, expecting him to keel over and die at any moment. But And this eh. wasn't spiked alcohol. It was no. straight, straight wood alcohol. wood alcohol. So not only lethal alcohol, but 98 or 195 proof. A little bit of water uh, in it. it. I, yeah, I'm not really sure what the proof is on like denatured alcohols and stuff. But it's I know a that a lot higher than it is in liquor. Correct. Because yeah. you're not supposed to drink it. Yep. <laughs> like, liquor has a certain amount of proof because you're supposed to drink it. That's kind of why they make it. Denatured alcohol will just strip paint off of an engine block. And it's this sort of knowledge, is, which is why you should contact Chris Miller for all your event <laughs> bartending needs. Link in bio. But after several hours, Malloy, still alive, stumbled from the speakeasy into the night. The Tonys poured themselves a celebratory drink, believing that Malloy would expire sometime in the night. But to their surprise, the next morning, in walked Malloy, happy as could be, asking for a drink. Now, Marino began to believe that maybe what he'd heard about instant effects may have been wrong, that it would take a delay, some time for the effects of the wood alcohol to kick in, and it would eventually take out old Mike Malloy. But after more than two weeks of the same nightly cycle of Malloy enter, Malloy drink whiskey, Malloy drink wood alcohol, Malloy not die, Malloy come back, Marino decided that something else needed to be tried. Rose cakes. <laughs> a pistol. Just a pistol and a gay Russian prince. So I mean, at one point, Malloy passed out. Yeah. And like they're they're listening like he's like he has like short jagged breaths and they're like leaning down they're like fuck we finally did it we're good we got it like Marino has his ear next to like next to his mouth checking for breath he just started snoring yeah woke up a couple hours later and then asked for more like continued drinking this is just wood alcohol yeah <laughs> so like I like to think of us all as fairly competent drinkers. We wouldn't handle this. Uh, no, no, we would simply be blind. We would just die. <laughs> so because we're soft, soft millennials, that's why. Yeah, <laughs> men just aren't as tough anymore. It's all that It's all testosterone levels. Yeah, yeah, I'm a Gen Xer. Thank you. So, so you should, in theory, be able to handle slightly more wood alcohol than us. Yes. Yeah, yeah. Get so ceteris paribus. It's genetic. So Marino decided to tell Red Murphy. To not even bother pouring Malloy whiskey at all, but just to start pouring pure wood alcohol for Malloy's first drink. After several hours, Malloy gave a strangled cry and fell off the bar, <laughs> falling, <laughs> falling semi-conscious it to the floor. Oaky. <laughs> he laid on the floor, rolled around for several minutes, farted loudly, and stopped moving. Now, Marino closed the bar. This is from a police report. Yeah. <laughs> This is from a police interview after the fact. Now Marino closed the bar and left Malloy there overnight, hoping to come to coming in, in hoping to come in in the morning to find Malloy lying dead on the sticky floor. But in the morning, Malloy was on the crash couch snoring contentedly. Not only did he get up, he got up with enough sense to find the couch. Yep. Upon waking up, his only complaint was a raging headache, not usually something he apparently dealt with as the man seemed to be hangover proof. But that was it. Day after day, Malloy seemed to lash it all back without a care in the world, to no effect, always stumbling, completely blind drunk out of the bar, only re to return the next day ready for more. Now Marino decided that maybe he was using the wrong type of wood alcohol, and so he began to swap out the booze for various methanol derivatives. Now Murphy, in various stages, poured antifreeze, <laughs> turpentine, horse liniment, and eventually just straight up liquid rat poison into Malloy's glass. <laughs> now, every single time, Malloy gave no indication that he even noticed any difference in the taste or the smell of what he was drinking, or that he was having any effect on him other than usual intoxication, or if it was that he gave a shit. Every time he would stumble out of the bar into the night, only to come back to the next only to come back the next day for more of Marino's delicious bar stock and to have a great time. So the conspirators decided that straight up drink was not the way to go. I'm just wondering, did anybody notice at any time that the potted plant next to Iron Mike was slowly starting to wither? <laughs> <laughs> just giving all oh, his breath. Can you? Oh, God. It would have been dangerous to have been near him. Yeah. yeah. 
I just he would have been breathing. Well, if, <laughs> you can't light up. Just, just firing him in there. <laughs> you can't light a match within ten feet of this man. Yeah, but he like just like this man is breathing a lot of chemicals, like a lot of noxious <laughs> chemicals. It would have been dangerous to be next to him, yeah. and he's fine. <laughs> and here I am thinking that all these fanboys who piss and moan that the media that they want to consume isn't exactly the way they want it and they fantasized about it. This man came in for whiskey and was drinking rat poison and, and he was totally cool with it. So settle for what you get. Yeah. Learn a lesson, <laughs> nerds. <laughs> so the conspirators decided that perhaps straight up drinking was not the way to go. Instead, Pasqua told a story he'd heard about a man who died after eating oysters that had sat in whiskey to preserve them. And when he'd eaten them, the hyper-concentrated alcohol in the sea boogers on the half shell had allegedly killed him. Is it bad that I think this sounds kind of good? I mean, I would say we could try it, but it killed a bunch of people. I mean, you definitely don't want to give it to me, but that's the problem with oysters in general. Oh, sorry. Yeah. So the gang decided to give this a try with the speakeasy seafood menu, which was, of course, the plate of sardines, or on rare occasion, <laughs> or on rare occasion, a plate of oysters that would be sitting out on the bar as a snack for patrons. Remember, in the 1930s, oysters are not considered a luxurious thing. This is Lobster only started being expensive. It used yeah. to just be like garbage. Oysters were not considered a luxurious food until the 50s or 60s. They were considered like poor people trash food. Right. Like they're, eels they're, in the UK. Yeah, yeah. they're kind of gross. Like yeah. It's an oyster. I love them, but I totally get why people don't. That's the reason I called them sea boogers on that <laughs> yeah. channel. Now, knowing that oysters were the way to go since they were apparently Malloy's favorite snack... For several days, they soaked a batch of oysters in a bucket of pure grain alcohol for several days, and Malloy came in to drink as per usual, but brightened when a plate of oysters was placed on the bar for him and him alone. He's a, living his best life, A honestly. gift to a valued customer. He <laughs> thinks he's hit the jackpot, baby. He loves it. He tucked in with his fingers and ate every single one of the oysters in a matter of minutes, ordering another glass of wood alcohol to wash it down with. Mm. Now, surely this had to work. The hyper-concentration of methanol in the oysters being enough to blitz his system and finally kill the man. He wandered off into the night, and sure enough, waltzed right back in the next day for more drinks, happy as you like, inquiring as to when he could expect such another delicious seafood treat. Now, since oysters weren't the answer, they brought another dish for Malloy, a tin of sardines, and left that tin open for over a week so that the little fish could get all nice and rotten. Spreading the mess on slices of bread... They then mixed in broken glass, metal filings from the floor of a local machine shop, and even a handful of carpet tacks, and presented Malloy with the dish once he was good and shithoused. Trick or treat. Yeah. Now, the hammered Irishman knocked down this snack of champions, the astonished conspirators watching him down it without so much as a single cough, wincing at the crunching sound of glass between Malloy's teeth. <laughs> there was so much in it, you could hear him chewing it. Yeah. Then... They poured more wood alcohol and horse liniment down his face, Pasqua suggesting that if the sharp objects cut open his digestive tract, then the toxins would more easily get into his system, and that would be that. Then, when Malloy walked in the next day, eagerly expecting more snacks to go with his booze, Marino realized that things were now just starting to get a little bit silly. So, falling back on Tough Tony's idea, Marino went out to buy a gun. Not a revolver, not a shotgun, but a Tommy gun. Because even though it seems over the top... I'm going to be honest. Like, at this point, you're really going to want to let it eat. That's the thing, yeah. (laughs) That's the thing. is he At this point, he couldn't be sure that a regular pistol magazine had enough bullets in it to kill this seemingly invincible Irishman. Now, the plan was soon shelved, however, when Marino was unwilling to pay the $50 that a Tommy gun cost in those days, realizing that his costs were starting to climb ever higher thanks to the fact that Malloy just wouldn't die. However... Things were looking up. As January 1933 plotted on, Malloy suddenly didn't show up one day. He didn't show up the next day either. More than a week went by when there was no sign of Michael Malloy, and the conspirators began to get their hopes up, believing that he would eventually be discovered somewhere on the streets, no longer living, the alcohol finally having killed him, and they could all cash in. Their hopes were eventually dashed when Malloy eventually wandered into the bar one cold day, explaining that he'd been recuperating in a local hospital after a sore in his leg had become infected and turned nasty. Besides, it was cold as hell outside. (laughs) Bingo. The cold. (laughs) Marino had it. The same tool he had utilized before in his first murder to gather insurance money in the Mabel Carlson case. He'd simply get Malloy to pass out, strip him, Soak him and leave him outside for the elements to do How his work. How did they not think about this before? Poison-soaked sardines. Path of least resist. I don't know. 
I don't know. There's this is some Looney Tunes bullshit. I love it. <laughs> now, when Malloy had downed enough toxic chemicals to kill a small town and passed out, Marino and Tough Tony dragged his unconscious form a block north to the quiet confines of Cortona Park, tossing Malloy onto a park bench, stripping him to his shirtwaist, and dumping a bucket of cold water on him before leaving him to the icy winds of New York in, in January. Now, Marino and company came in to open up the next day, finding the familiar form of Red Murphy asleep on the ratty couch, but a far less welcoming sight awaited them in the basement. Mike Malloy, wrapped in an old overcoat, was asleep on the floor of the cellar next to the furnace. Malloy must have woken up before he froze to death, stumbled back down the street to 3775 3rd Avenue, knocked on the door, waking Red, who, in his own stupor or possibly mostly still asleep, let him in without thinking about it. Now, Malloy had once again evaded death. The same process was tried again a couple days later, with the unconscious Malloy being taken to the more distant and out-of-the-way Claremont Park, from which he wouldn't be easily able to wander back to the speak. Malloy didn't come in the next day, and Marino's hopes spiked as he perused the papers for notices of a dead man being found in the park. No word. And then, the next day, in came Mike Malloy in a brand new suit. <laughs> Two policemen had found him in a snowbank, bundled him into their car, taking him to a nearby homeless charity shelter, where he was warmed, fed, and reclothed. January plodded on, and Malloy kept coming back, better than ever, day after day, for his daily dose of toxic chemicals. Marino, with little else to do but stare on in bitter resentment, contacted two local hoods, Eddie Smith and John McNally, whom he had earlier tried to enlist to run Malloy over with a car and make it look like an accident, <laughs> offering the pair $200 for their troubles. <laughs> the two hoods had originally turned down their offer, the money not being good enough, but when Marino called them back, they had been reconsidering. The two men decided that they didn't want to do the job after all, but they found Marino someone who would. One of Marino's regulars, in fact. Hershey Green, the cab driver. Green would take $175, although he later admitted he would have done it for a lot less. And the pair would get the rest as a finder's fee, and Green and Marino set to planning Malloy's end. Wood alcohol would still play a role. They get Malloy insensibly drunk at the speak, take him out into the neighborhood to a quiet side street late at night, dump him in the road, and then Green would run him over as fast as his taxi would go. Crude, but simple. That The fateful night was January the 30th. Green showed up at the speak at 10 p.m., way earlier than they'd agreed, and sat with the rest of the gang, along with Smith and McNally, watching Malloy get hammered. This is just now nine sober men watching a dude just get hammered drunk in a bar. <laughs> Once he was insensible, the entire group bundled into Green's cab, making ten people total... <laughs> including Malloy and Green, in the car. <laughs> Marino, who was a little guy, had to sit on Tough Tony's lap the whole way. <laughs> I think they didn't trust anybody to not, do, to not pull this one off, so they just, piled, they just piled everybody in like it's a phone booth in the 60s. Yeah. <laughs> so, finding a deserted street... It's the cloud car. Yeah. Finding a deserted street, they dragged Malloy into the middle of the road, then a light in the house next door came on. Panicking... They all bundled back into the cab and found another street with Smith and McNally volunteering to hold Malloy in place and get out of the way at the last minute before, he, before they squished him with the cab. Now, either Hershey Green had terrible aim or Malloy was a far more nimble drunk than we give him credit for, but five times Green tried to hit Malloy and missed the drunken pile of a person a in the middle of the street. A couple times they did pull off because like somebody was coming or something, yeah. but they, they did have to pull off. But no, they, well, they they were also like throwing them in a cab, like a speeding cab. It wasn't going like fifteen miles an hour. Now, the sixth time, however, Green made contact at fifty miles an hour, and Malloy's body ragdolled onto the curb and landed in a crumpled heap. It looked as though Malloy wasn't breathing, and he definitely wasn't moving. However, a car came along the street, and the gang panicked again. Once again, all piled into Green's cab and floored it back to the speakeasy, where celebratory drinks were offered up all around. The next few days were tense, checking the papers for reports of a hit and run. Everyone expected Malloy to saunter right back in, right as rain, but that didn't happen either. There existed a weird state of limbo. No reports of some poor old Irishman being hit by a car while walking around drunk. No sign of the body still being there on the sidewalk, and they checked. And no living Malloy darkening the speak's doorway. With no body, there was a problem. With no body, there was no insurance payout. Then, they came up with an alternative. 
Instead of waiting all this time to see if he was actually dead, why not find somebody else? A man of appropriate age without a family around to claim him, you put a fake ID card with Malloy's name on it in his pocket, and you run him down instead, and no one's any the wiser. <laughs> now, unknown to them, Malloy wasn't dead. He was tucked up safe and warm in a bed at Fordham Hospital, recovering from some admittedly pretty major injuries. An anonymous call had been placed to the police to respond to a man being hit by a car, and Malloy was found and put in an ambulance. He'd had a fractured skull, a severe concussion, several broken ribs, and a broken scapula. Meanwhile, Joseph Patrick Murray, 56, had been lured back to the speak with the promise of a job, and had been given plenty of whiskey and had an ID card for Nicholas Mallory, the name on the insurance policies, slipped into his pocket. Again, eight men piled into the back of Green's taxi, but at some point in the proceedings, Smith and McNally, the two local hoods who were still hanging around to earn some cred with Tough Tony, decided they'd had quite enough of the whole affair, thank you very much, and jumped out of the taxi, walking away to the sound of threats from Tough Tony Bastone and Tony Marino. Now, Murray was tossed into the road, and Green's taxi rolled right over the poor man. But a local night shift worker heard the impact and stepped out into the street in time not only to take down the license plate number of Hershey Green's cab, but to also call an ambulance for Murray, saving his life. The police were now on the trail of the conspirators, although they didn't know the extent of the criminal enterprise yet. Green was taken in and spent the night being grilled by police, although he didn't give anything away, and the authorities declined to press any immediate charges. Now again, no sign in the papers of the body of Nicholas Mallory being found, and again, no insurance payout, although it looked like the gang had rubbed off two men trying to gain it. Marino and Tough Tony, now with their nerve shot, decided that another plan change was in order. They'd find a third man, the same way they'd hooked in Murray, rent a room using counterfeit bills, I don't know why it had to be counterfeit bills, knock the new guy out with booze, and then take him up to the room, running a hose from the coal gas heating pipe straight into his throat, gassing him to death, and making sure that he was in a place where the body would be found with an ID on it that said Nicholas Mallory. Frank Pasqua also added his two cents to the plan, offering a local medical examiner, Dr. Frank Manzella, $150 to sign a false death certificate with an innocent-sounding cause of death to cover their tracks. The plan was ready to go, and all they had to do was learn a victim. Then, to everyone's surprise, and yet no one's surprise, into the speakeasy walked none other than Michael Malloy. After a three-week hospital stay for his injuries, still in some pain and in desperate need of a drink, that's when the fateful decision was made. Instead of finding a stranger, they tried ga the gassing plan on Malloy himself. But the plan almost came apart again. Red Murphy, his own nerve shot, cracked and warned Malloy of the plan. Oh. Malloy simply downed his drink, snorted, and exclaimed that anybody with designs on his life would, quote, suffer it themselves. Now, Red pleaded with his old buddy to get out of town, but Malloy didn't take the warning seriously, or he was too fucked up to care. Throughout February, Malloy kept coming back, knocking back glass after glass of pure wood alcohol. And finally, with a place found for the gassing, Marino played his hand on the night of February 23, 1933. Challenging Malloy to a drinking contest, which uh, one might think is of a, as a bit of a fool's errand against Mike Malloy, he had Red pour watered-down whiskey for himself while Malloy got his usual straight methanol. Red Murphy estimated that in the next 20 minutes, Marino got shithoused on what he was drinking, but Malloy took down about two full quarts of pure wood alcohol, <laughs> unsurprisingly passing out. Now, Tough Tony took over for the completely rocked Marino and had Malloy carried to the rented room, where he ran a hose directly from the gas pipe straight into the unconscious Irishman's throat. After surviving enough wood alcohol and toxic chemicals to float a battleship, being deliberately frozen twice and run over by a car, Michael Malloy was dead from carbon monoxide poisoning within an hour. Now, Dr. Frank Manzella handled the autopsy, declaring Malloy dead of lober pneumonia, and, Dr. F and Frank Pasqua was paid a small sum by the city to bury Mike Malloy in a pauper's grave. Nothing more was thought of it. The first insurance payout hit within a month, and the loot was shared out, although it was a lot less than originally hoped for, with six conspirators in on the take and all the expenses it took to kill Mike Malloy. Now, for all their efforts, the better part of a year and all the risk involved, each man walked away with slightly less than $130 each, less than five grand at modern purchasing power. 
thanks to the fact that only the $800 policy actually paid out because the other two policies had a hold put on them thanks to a tip being called into the Metropolitan Insurance Company. But, though the boys of 3775 thought they had gotten away clean, the NYPD and its new organized crime unit were starting to hear rumblings of a murder involving a supposedly immortal Irishman. (laughs) (laughs) They followed up some trails and heard about a guy named Iron Mike, or Mike the Durable. Killed for insurance money, and set up investigations into the named conspirators. Malloy's body was exhumed from its pauper's grave and given a proper medical examination, and the actual cause of death was quickly determined and murder warrants put out from the conspirators. By the end of June 1933, all but two had been arrested. Antonio Bastone, Tough Tony, had been shot and killed a month earlier by his business partner, Joe Maglione, who would go to prison for his, for his murder instead of Malloy's, as it was easier to try. Of the rest, Hershey Green was found guilty of conspiracy and attempted murder and spent 15 years in Sing Sing. Hmm. Dr. Frank Manzella, the corrupt medical examiner, was found guilty of accessory after the fact and spent five years behind bars, losing his medical license in the process. Frank Pasqua, Tony Marino, Red Murphy, and Daniel Kreisberg were all found guilty of capital murder and were sent to Sing Sing under a death sentence. Marino was also tried and found guilty in the murder of Mabel Carlson, and Edward Smith and John McNally turned state's evidence against the rest of the conspirators in return for lighter sentences of 15 years each. Now, Marino, Pasqua, and Kreisberg rode the lightning on June 7, 1934, and Red Murphy followed them to Old Sparky on July 5th of that same year. Mike Malloy's legend would go down in lore as a tale of resilience for stupid reasons, but he would in the end, received some measure of justice. 3775 Third Avenue in the Bronx, where the speakeasy that sealed Malloy's fate once stood, is now occupied by a Boost Mobile storefront and number one wok Chinese restaurant, which has 2.2 stars on Yelp. And that's my story. The most, like, it's just unbelievable. Like, the hilarious amount of ways yeah. that they tried to kill him. And the fact that he kept, like, disappearing. Yeah. I'm like, ah, I finally got him. And then he would show up. Once he showed up in new clothes. <laughs> like, how is this guy's life he alive, better? he's got a snazzy new suit. Yeah, like, how is this guy's life getting better? <laughs> it's a, it's a literal Looney Tunes cartoon. Yeah. How out of it do you have to be to not realize that you're chewing glass, thumbtacks, carpet tacks, and whatever... <laughs> How hammered do you have to be to not know you're shitting it out? Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. How drunk do you have, have to, be to be to have two guys them. throw you at a speeding cab five times? <laughs> yeah. Pull. I, and he, he forgot. He didn't know how old he was. He didn't no. know where he was. But he didn't know any family. He knew nothing. Like He was just cooked. Well, the only reason they know he was born in 1870 in County Donegal is because the U.S. government followed up with Irish uh, parish records. That's how they found out. That's the only way they found out anything about it. Just incredible, man. So, Chris, anything to add? I know you had a bunch of notes, a lot of stuff to uh, Yeah, I, I, but, but we covered pretty much all of it. Uh, the thing that got me is that they just kept adding men. Yeah. They just they kept adding <laughs> dudes. What started as a four-man thing later became, what, nine? Yeah. and I, Including uh, the cab driver and the two hood. Yeah, nine. I thought yeah. I had it written to, like, how much they... I don't remember what the take was, but... Whenever they, they cash their first check, yeah. which turned out to be bogus, which is more or less the coffin nail in their, you know, in in their little crime spree here, uh, they both bought a suit. It's all they had money for. Yeah. That's it. <laughs> I think it was Marino and Pasco. They bought suits. Yeah. Because they, they got like Which they needed 15 for their hearing. <laughs> and the, the problem is they, they were, they kept trying different and exciting ways to kill this guy because it was costing them so much money. Like... Okay, if it pays out now, we're we're approaching the break even point. Yeah. That's how resilient this man was, that it was no longer profitable to murder him. They they came very, very close to losing money on murdering Mike Malloy for money. And that the fact like after they they lost him and they're like, Oh shit, now what do we do? As they're plotting to do the same thing to a different guy, he just walks in. <laughs> He just shows up. It's like, I really need a drink. Well, yeah, no shit. You just got hit by a cab going 50 miles an hour. I just... 
I know we shit on the Italians and the Irish a lot on this podcast, but... I don't shit on the Italians. Well, you don't. I do. <laughs> I don't know what you're talking about. Uh, but, uh, boy, there's this really illustrates that there's good reasons for both. Oh, absolutely. But I do think that, I mean, in the end, you got to think that Malloy's the winner here. Yeah. That's the thing that really gets me about Malloy. And they tried, it was months. A lot of people know the name. It was months. A lot of people Seasons, know the name Iron Mike year. Seasons changed. Yeah. Over this. Like the, <laughs> and he drank for free like a champion. They fed him. Yeah. <laughs> he ate oysters. Oysters on the half shell. A rotten and, sardine sandwich with mm, all the trimmings. And, to be completely fair, they only tried to kill the other four once. Yeah. Also, <laughs> oh, <sorry. laughs> Let's yeah, be honest. And they all died the first time they tried yep. to kill him. Yep, so get wrecked. I don't want to victim blame here, but I can't imagine Malloy was a particularly pleasant person to be around. It in seems general. like everybody enjoyed his company. Yeah. Like, he was always, like, happy and whistling. Yeah. Yeah, and it, saying, like, hilarious things all the time. Apparently, he was kind of an okay dude to be around as long as all you right. could understand his drunken slurring. Because it was, it was described as jovial. Yeah. All Red right. Murphy loved him. That's part, of the reason yeah. why, that's part of the reason why Tony Marino decided that Mike Malloy had to die is because of the big-ass tab that Red Murphy had given him under Marino's nose. This dude went, well... But he was like, oh, okay, we also have an opportunity to make money and to make my money back on the tab. And Yeah, because he ain't these, paying it. Yeah, and these guys realize, oh, we have an opportunity to make money too, which shows you kind of the attitude of prohibition. I was like, you know what? He's a nice guy. I can make 500 bucks. Kill him. Yeah. Makes, makes me wonder if Murphy might have been the anonymous tip to the uh, insurance company. Okay, there is a theory out there yeah. about that, that he was trying to do something to derail it, although... He had an IQ of 56. Oh, that's right. Yeah. Some people think it was Kreisberg because Kreisberg was much smarter. And some people thought that that was a move by Kreisberg that would allow him to turn state's evidence and make a plea deal. I mean, nowadays he wouldn't qualify for the death penalty in any state other than Texas. True. I mean, that's, yeah, like murder that's one's That's not a joke. It's, you know, yeah, no, it's not. But, but the fact that you, you kind of have to look at at who went state's evidence. I think yeah. that's going to be the most telling. It's the two because, hoods, the two but, that walked away. But out of all of them, whenever the like whenever the law came to the speakeasy, whenever they all got arrested, they all snitched. Oh yeah. All of them. Every single one and they all told the same story. That's the that's the pretty wild part. I mean, I mean like yes. they might have been like, "Well, Tony said that we should feed him nails and then hit him with a car." And yeah. like, "Well, Dan said we should feed him nails and hit and him, hit with, him a with a car." Well, well Tim, Frank said we should feed him nails and hit him with a car. What was the one cat's name I had to write it down? Uh, Edward Smith, Edward Tin Ear Smith, yeah. whose uh, ear was wax. It was not tin. Yeah. <laughs> but there, there's your missing ear uh, hood out of this, and there's your there's your link. Did, 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 your, I couldn't find anywhere about how he lost the ear. It just said he didn't have one. Yeah. But they called him Tin Ear, even though it wasn't metal, which would have been dope if it was. It's like it's like. Tico Brahe with the, yeah, the silver exactly. nose, yeah. <laughs> I mean, an ear's not as cool as a metal nose, but... No. You know, it's still fun. But what is? Yeah. But, like, the fact that the, the guy's lot in life may have actually improved slightly. <laughs> he definitely had fun on the way out. Yeah. <laughs> he died doing Minus what he loved. The whole thing, like, he got hit, hit by a car, thing. and then he was like, man, it kind of sucked. I sure could go for a drink. And they're like, here's some poison. Yeah. It was like, thank you. This is delicious. Yum, yum, yum. I, down, down it goes. Just, down into my belly. What does that say about the Irish palate? And, I <laughs> and gotta say, the CO2 was the the least painful way or to go the CO, out of yeah. all. Yeah. Out of, yeah, the CO. yeah, seriously. Well, he was already unconscious. Yeah. And that's just, the thing. He didn't know. Yeah, he had no yeah. idea. Yeah, I mean, well, it, very it few to, people that do succumb to that know, yeah. to, to be fair. I mean, his was a little more forceful. Mm-hmm. Than other people that have carbon monoxide poisoning, but it had to hurt a lot less than shredded glass sandwich. Yeah, we're getting hit by a car. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> that car was going fifty. It's <laughs> on a side street in New York. It's like they were trying to <laughs> in kill, the middle of the they night. Were trying to kill Popeye or some <laughs> <Yeah>. shit. <laughs> it's oh, what an incredible story! And it's it's it is just. Oh, farce from beginning to end. Oh, absolutely. It just keeps trying. And that's part of the reason we picked this as a follow-up to Rasputin. It, you know what it reminds me? Similar it, themes, but a much lighter context. It sounds like a fucking Tales of the Crypt or Creepshow fucking short. It yeah, has a yeah. lot of 
Tales from the Crypt about it. It really does. Yeah. It's um, probably a couple stories derived from this. Oh, there are absolutely stories derived from Iron Mike Malloy. There's um, there's been a lot of uh, like Amazing Tales kind of TV yeah. shows that have done fictionalized stories based around the story of Mike Malloy or have covered the story of Mike Malloy. It's the guy that wouldn't die. Yeah. But yeah, it was a said, whole plot of like Mr. Yeah, Magoo. They said that last night. He drank two full quarts of straight wood alcohol. One quart is enough to kill all of us in this room. Correct. So, plus Mike. Yeah. So for the Patreon listeners, uh, for our next uh, bonus content, if we're going be- to get two pints of uh, quarts. Wood, quarts of wood alcohol, and we're going to see how far we go. Please, please, please. We have a lot of European fans in Estonia. I know I got mad at them earlier, <laughs> but is this not to them? Because we're not out of the top 20. It'll be leaders. <laughs> I'm a scientist. We work in metric. If someone pays the $10,000 level, we can guarantee one of us will die. <laughs> How much is a quart of denatured alcohol? <laughs> so, oh, boy. So. Uh, denatured protein? What the fuck? Oh, boy. I uh, say I one of us buy... will die. They're going to be really confused when guest oh, host Steve starts showing up next week. got it for eight bucks. Oh, there we go. Yeah. The cheapest way to get drunk. I can pick it up tomorrow. That's Sunnyside. That is not store brand either. That's good stuff. Mm, that's the Sunnyside that's, stuff. That's the quality. Oh, yeah. It's not clean strip, but what is? <laughs> I'm going to give myself a little note here to up my giving. <laughs> <laughs> so... Uh, Anything else well, this, to add? Uh, uh, well, this is, of course, denatured alcohol. It's not wood alcohol. So technically, it's a little safer. Yeah. Not, yeah not, it's just, not a lot. It's just fuel. Yeah. We got this. <laughs> so, gentlemen, anything else to add on Mike Malloy before we wrap up for oh, today? Oh, man. Like, what a motherfucker, man. Like, seriously. Like, what a motherfucker. Like, it, All right, good, so, good for him, I guess. Like, yeah. you know, like, when people say they're built different, Mike Malloy was built different. Well, and here's the thing. A lot of people know the name Iron Mike Malloy. Very, very few people who know the name Mike Malloy could name anyone else involved in that conspiracy. Correct. Yeah. So to go back to the last four months of our lives, um, Rasputin and Mike Malloy sit down at a Russian bar together. Who's walking away? Mike Malloy. Yeah. Yeah. Because Mike Malloy survived nightly attempts on his life. Rasputin survived multiple attempts in his life, but he didn't survive the night. Or do they just fall in love? Ooh, now we have Kyle's newest erotic fan fiction. I want to find Mike Malloy's dick in a jar. (laughs) (laughs) It's an Irish penis, so it's not a big jar. They they both go to Yar. Yeah. And just let whatever happens, happens. I can just see Rasputin going, here, check on this. (laughs) Oh, God. Oh, Keith. Uh, Keith, why'd you thrust? Did you have yeah. to? Oh, you could have you just painted us weird. a word picture, but instead you did the you did the act out. You and made that, it weird. Uh, well, as I try to cleanse my head from that, if anyone could pass me some wood alcohol, Chris, if you want, how can people find it, us out? There? It would have been a lot harder with tin here. You know? <laughs> oh no! Oh. What were we talking about? Uh, we're, we're talking about. <laughs> oh, yeah, we're going to find us shit. on social media. Uh, you can follow us on Twitter at PodcastTRR. You can follow us on Instagram at TRRPod. If you want to drop us a line, just like Keith did for our last uh, absolutely gargantuan uh, series on Rasputin. And we can't Listen, going forward, number. you're not getting six episodes unless you give us some serious <laughs> cash money. Or like a bunch of like. Whiskey oysters and sardine sandwiches with nails and wooden shit in them. I'll take what uh, I can get. Yeah. yeah. But you can email us at trrpod at gmail.com or you can join the crew at patreon.com slash trrpod. Supporters are supporters, Chris. I'll take whatever they're willing to give us. Yeah. That's my favorite brand is free. Yeah. Sponsored content is sponsored content. So. If somebody mails me wood alcohol, I'm be pissed off. <laughs> <laughs> I love that it's both gift and implied threat. It's just a, the, the scent from Linus is a Sharpie marker middle finger. <laughs> so, yeah. So next time, we're going to be walking away from colossal alcoholics. Aww. Finally. But yeah, not, not just a bunch of people whacking just straight fucking methyl alcohol. Yeah. But we are going to be kind of staying in the world of stupid crime. And uh, Chris is actually going to be taking the helm for this one. Yeah, we're going to be talking about the Chowchilla 
school bus kidnapping. We are. A good old story of, well, we took a story from one of the weirdest parts of American history, the 1930s, and now we're going to follow it with a story from the other weirdest part of American history, the 1970s. Yeah, the mid-70s. Yeah. Great time for our country. Great time. Great time. (laughs) (sighs) I don't know how we survived it. Anyway. uh, I I know how I survived. I wasn't fucking there. (laughs) All right. Gentlemen, if you would uh, pour your glasses of horse liniment and raise a glass in a cheers as we bid the audience farewell. Until next time. And, and honestly, like let's let's toast to Mike Malloy before yeah. we hit him with the send-off. It, so the great... Is there glass in this? <laughs> here's, here's honestly like, here's one, to, here's one to Iron Mike. Kyle, shut up and eat your rotten sardine. <laughs> <laughs> oh, that's horrible. Wow, that made a really unpleasant noise. Yes, that was Kyle chewing on a can. <laughs> Get the next one out of the tube. This one's spoiled. Hold fast, everybody. Bye.